Uh, this evening I want to talk on the topic of an attitude for awareness. And there are kind of two things that I want to touch on in the talk tonight. One, I want to go over some of the specific terms and some of the technical language that we'll be using throughout the retreat. Philip touched on a lot of that this morning and described them beautifully and the way they relate together and impact our experience. And I want to expand on that a little bit. And the second thing I want to talk about is sort of how we approach our practice, the spirit that we bring to it, because this is quite an important part of it. This is not just a mechanical process of follow this instruction and that leads there. There needs to be an inner relationship to what we're doing. And this is sometimes described as having the right attitude in meditation or taking the right approach. So I want to talk a little bit about the attitude with which we can approach our practice. And this applies not only to this particular retreat where we'll focus a lot on awareness, but our meditation practice in general. So one teacher described this kind of right attitude with three simple words. Relax, observe, allow. And I think these are three really good guidelines for us for this whole week together. So I'll talk a little bit about each one of these, these aspects. In relaxing, we are both intending to relax the body and intending to relax the mind insofar as they will do that. Sometimes they will not do that. And in fact, learning to relax the body is something that in the West, you know, we spend quite a bit of time on, you know, the technology of massage and hydrotherapy and reflexology and all those different kind of touches to bring relaxation to the body. And even then there are some aches and pains and tensions that just won't release. But we generally in the West haven't had a lot of understanding of how to relax the mind. But this is really where the heart of relaxation has to come from. How can we relax our mind? Because there are many things that make the mind not relaxed. We could say the challenges of daily life bring movement from within our own mind that lead away from relaxation. We have reactions of wanting or not wanting, of desire and aversion. And all those forces tend to make the mind tight and unrelaxed. In our meditation practice, we can get tight if we're uh, afraid of doing it wrong. Sometimes, you know, we think if we miss one moment or do one stretch of meditation wrong, we're never going to get it and we're going to be a bad meditator forever. So we can get tight around that. We find, of course, we can make all kinds of mistakes in meditation and somehow things keep unfolding. It's sort of amazing that despite our, some of our bad habits, it doesn't actually stop the meditation from working. And that's very reassuring to find out. Sometimes um, the mind can become unrelaxed if we really want something special to happen. And I had quite a lot of this in the beginning of my practice. I had this quality. It's generally considered a good quality in meditation practice, especially in the beginning, uh, that's sometimes described as zeal. I had a lot of zeal in the start of my practice, but I have to say it was a little out of balance. And part of it was I really wanted some result. 
you know, like enlightenment or liberation or something major to happen. And I was pressing for that. So this was pointed out to me not long after I'd moved to California. My wife and I moved there some years ago. And not long after we arrived, some of our friends in the Dharma community were going to see this psychic. So I thought, I'll go see the psychic. And that's kind of what you do when you go to California. You get your driver's license, you go to see a psychic, and and then you've really landed. So she and I went to see this psychic together, and we walked through the door. And as we walked in, the psychic sort of did this big recoil from me. And he said, hold on. You want it so much. He said, don't you know that God comes to those who don't want him so strongly? So that was actually a really good intuition about this zeal that I was approaching meditation practice with. And I have to say, I'm glad that I had that zeal, especially in the early part of my practice, because it's a tremendous motivator. And it fueled a lot of um, really good years of serious practice. So I especially recommend it to young practitioners. Don't worry about having a lot of zeal. It can carry you a long way. But at some point, and when I saw the psychic was probably a good point, to start to learn to bring it into balance. Or otherwise we can burn ourselves out with that kind of uh, what's called dhamma chanda, desire for the dhamma uh, in meditation. So there are all these different forces in the heart and mind working to bring contraction. Our basic sense of self-centeredness and self-concern works to contract us. And to undo that, we have to learn this quality of relaxing. Really, in essence, this quality of relaxing is about letting go, is about not clinging, not holding on, not controlling. But it's not something that comes so easily. So we want to uh, investigate it and uh, incline in that direction often. So you'll often hear us in the instructions point to this quality of relaxing. And we mean to relax the body as much as possible and to begin to learn how to relax the mind, to let go a little bit of the mind's tendency to grasp and control. So when we're able to relax, this sends a very important message kind of throughout the system. It sends a message to the brain that says something like, things are all right. Everything is basically okay. If we can bring that quality of relaxation in, then the the mind knows it, the brain knows it, then the body gets the message, and everything can start to settle a bit. And there is a deep reason in the Dharma why we can trust and what we can trust in. And I want to relate this koan that comes from a a Chinese Chan master many centuries ago. His name, which I'm not sure of the pronunciation of, but I read it as Shito, was a Chan master some generations after Hui Neng, who I think was the fifth Zen ancestor and author of the Platform Sutra. And Shito was in a dialogue with a seeker who was coming to him for advice and teaching. And this seeker came to him and said, what am I supposed to do? 
And Shito's reply was, why are you asking me? So we might use this too during this retreat, so be forewarned. He says, why are you asking me? And the seeker says, where else can I find what I'm looking for? And Shito replies, are you sure you've lost it? Are you sure you've lost it? Is another way of saying, are you sure you're not complete and whole and perfect just as you are? And it's a profound pointer to the basic nature of our own minds that each of us has, embodies, is. This basic nature of which awareness is a direct expression has a quality of awakeness, of purity, of never having been stained or corrupted. And as we start to trust in that and feel that, then we know we have something we can really trust in and relax into. So the discovery of this is really the grounds for a quality of, we could call it faith. The Pali word is sadha. Faith is kind of a mixed word for Westerners because often we take it to mean belief. But uh, it's maybe better translated as trust or confidence. We discover this quality in ourselves, this basic goodness and purity through our direct experience. And awareness plays a vital role in that. Awareness sort of leads us into the knowledge of that and the experience of that, the trust in that. And once we know that that is there within us, that's what we can relax into. We realize we don't have to make something up to make ourselves different than we are. But there is this basic goodness, this basic nature that we just have to relax into and it will hold us, it will support us, and it will respond with loving kindness, with compassion, with understanding, with insight. So I think for all of us on the teaching side, this quality of exploring awareness has been so helpful because it's led us into a trust in this basic nature. And we'll talk more about that as we go through the retreat. So sometimes we might describe it as relaxing. Sometimes we might call it letting go. We might call it dropping. Another nice phrase is just settling back into the present moment. As we stop trying to make anything special happen, we can just settle back into the way things are right now. And in that settling back with presence, with awareness, this nature will start to reveal itself, will start to be felt. So once we touch this relaxation, the next word in attitude is observe. You know, observe is not my favorite word for this, but it's, it's not bad. We could also say pay attention or be mindful or be aware. Observe is a nice short way. But observe sometimes feels a little too dualistic. Like I'm removed and I'm going to watch from a distance something that's happening. So we, maybe a better word is feel. Feel into, sense, soften into our experience. But at any rate, once we relax, then we want to start to pay attention. What is our experience? What's happening? 
And we learn to pay attention to many different aspects of uh, the experience we're having. The key, of course, is that it's happening in the present moment. This is what we want to learn from, the present moment experience. And again, we have many tendencies that take us out of that. There's this New Yorker cartoon that sums this up really well. It's got three panels. So the first panel is a guy is at his computer, obviously at work, and he's looking at the screen, but there's a thought bubble above his head, which is the image of uh, swinging a golf club. So being on the golf course. So the second panel is he's on the golf course and he's about to hit a drive and there's a thought bubble above his head, which is being at home and making love to his partner. And so the third panel is the guy's at home making love to his partner and there's a thought bubble above his head, which is of his computer at work. It's so true, isn't it, that whatever we're doing, it's so easy to find ourselves somewhere else. And if our experience is like that, we start to feel fragmented. We're not whole. We don't have that collectedness of samadhi that has been mentioned. And so as we collect our attention in the present moment, we start to feel that kind of wholeness of being fully together here and now, and then being able to really learn from our experience. So this is part of the quality of observing is arriving here. Arriving so that we can really give our heart and mind to learn from our present moment experience. This has result of a lot of contentment, happiness, and satisfaction. I don't think it's possible to find real satisfaction in life living in that very fragmented way where half of our vital energy is lost to past or to future. But when we call that vital energy back and it's in the present moment, then contentment and fulfillment can really be felt. Satisfaction can be felt. Uh, A visitor came to visit um, the Buddha and his community of monks and nuns. And this, I think it was a king. I think the Buddha had strong relationships with a couple of kings who were his great supporters and supporters of the whole monastic community. I think it was one of them. And he said, I've been to visit a lot of different spiritual teachers and traditions and scenes. He said, and often people are arguing and quarreling and disputatious and feels very disharmonious. But when I come here, your people are uh, orderly and quiet and everybody looks so happy. Why are your followers so happy? And the Buddha said simply because they abide in the present. They abide in the present. So this ability to abide in the present removes a lot of the complication of life and restores a great deal of energy that brings a lot of joy and happiness. This is from Thoreau, from Walden. I feel a little alarmed when it happens that I have walked a mile into the woods bodily without getting there in spirit. What business have I in the woods if I am thinking of something outside the woods? 
So you might notice that here also when you go for a walk in the woods or when you go for your walking meditation. Are we really here where our body is? And this is the training of the meditation. We go off again and again and gently we just bring ourselves back. So we will be um, unfolding the instructions as we go day by day and we'll learn to pay attention to many different aspects of our experience. The objects like breath, body, sounds, and in this retreat especially, focusing on this quality of awareness that's knowing all of those. This knowing element will be a central piece of our exploration. And then the third piece, allow, says basically in our meditation, whatever is happening in the moment, we let it be the way it is. It may not be what we wanted, may not be what we would have ordered, but it's what's happening. And so we work to bring our heart into alignment with the way things are. We come into the present to see the way things are and this quality of allowing brings our heart into alignment with that. Because in the present moment, things couldn't have unfolded any other way. There are so many, many, many causes and conditions that have led the present moment to be what it is. For it to have come about differently, all those causes and conditions would have had to be different, or some of those would have had to be different. So in a given moment, that moment has unfolded in the only way that it could, based on past conditions. Of course, our meditation practice then is how do we respond to make the next moment better, appropriate, wholesome, satisfying, happy, free of suffering, and so forth. But in the past, leading up to this moment, it has been set by many, many causes and conditions. So there's this nice little uh, dialogue that one of the students at Spirit Rock brought to her teacher. She said, people are often asking me how I am And what I've learned to reply is, I couldn't be better. Because it's literally true. In this moment, I couldn't be better. So that's something you can say any time that somebody asks you how you are. If I could have been, I would be. But this is what is in this moment. I couldn't be better. This moment couldn't be different. So often we fight with that. We fight with that reality. Of course, you know when you fight with reality, who wins? But we often do fight with the reality of the present moment. And this message of allow says, let your heart and mind soften and open to the way things are right now. Important kind of caveat, this is describing an inner relationship. This is not saying what action you should take back in the world to take care of social injustice, of um, unfair things that are happening, of damage to the earth, of harm to other people around us. That's a different movement. But learning this inner quality of allowing lets us settle with greater and greater peace into the reality of the present moment. And that settledness gives us a better space to choose the wise action in response. If something needs to change externally or internally, we're coming from a place of settledness and some equanimity 
in order to most wisely make the next step. So, for instance, in meditation on a day like today, you may have seen many, many moments of not really wanting to accept things the way they are. First day of a retreat, often there's a lot of friction with the way things are. Somebody's in the shower room when I want to be there. What's served at lunch isn't really what I would have ordered today. Someone is making noise in the meditation hall behind my seat and I really want things to be quiet. I have a back pain that comes in after 40 minutes in a sitting and I really don't want to feel that. Many, many different things come and our kind of habit of mind is to uh, push against the things we don't like and try to make happen the things that we do. So it's, you know, it's quite interesting to observe the mind and its activity from this point of view, especially on a day like today. And you may see that you've been quite busy trying to make lots of these little adjustments. Just feel a little bit better. Just try to get ahead of the queue at lunch. Just try to make things a little quieter in the hall. We're always sort of adjusting our experience. When we first start to notice this habit, it doesn't seem like a big deal. It's just a little habit of mine. Everybody does. It's natural. We like some things. We don't like others. But we don't notice at first the effect that this has. We're trying to control our experience, and there's always a price that one pays for trying to control. And that price is we give up some freedom. As we look into this habit of adjusting, making things a little bit better, a little bit better, putting off the discomfort, a little more, a little more, we start to see it keeps the mind busy all the time. And it prevents us from settling into a deeper peace that has that spirit of allowing. In the Tibetan tradition, they say, um, let me back it up a minute. You've probably heard of this concept called samsara, which is a description of the, um, the wheel of birth and death that, according to the Buddha, we are on again and again and again. can be understood as many lifetimes, being born and dying, being born again and dying. Or it can be described in a moment-to-moment Uh, phenomenon throughout the day where we take birth in different personalities, different psychological states, different physical states throughout the day, all of which last just a little while, then they die off and a new one comes. However you want to understand it, the philosophy in Buddhism is that this cycle, this incessant cycle is wearying. That through repeated birth and death and birth and death, one grows tired the, the kind of struggle in that, in that cycle. So this uh, finding a place of freedom in relation to changing situations is called finding nirvana in relation to samsara. It's one of the things that we might look for in meditation practice. So in the Tibetan tradition, they say that what keeps the wheel going is trying to correct things. The essence of samsara is our attempt to correct it. So there's a profound pointing here that this quality of resting and peace where we let go of control is what can lead into this dimension of nirvana, 
of deep peace, satisfying peace. So one of the beautiful things about this quality of awareness that we're going to explore, I think Philip hinted at this this morning when he described it as being like a mirror, is that it doesn't care what it's reflecting. So often we care. We want it to be pleasant and we don't want it to be unpleasant. But awareness really doesn't care. It will reflect the beautiful, the harmonious, the peaceful, the pleasing, just as accurately as it will reflect what's difficult, conflicted, or painful. On a physical level, on an emotional level, on an external level, awareness has this accuracy to reflect anything that comes in front of it. As we let our attention go into that realm, our being starts to pick up some of that impartiality. We start to inhabit that realm that is at home with both pleasant and unpleasant appearances. And the more we give ourselves to that quality of awareness, the more our being discovers that peace and trust and refuge as Leela described last night. So this quality of awareness and its peacefulness and its impartiality becomes a a living refuge, an actual refuge for us. This is again from uh, the Chan master, Shito. Your essential mind is absolutely still and completely whole, and its ability to respond to circumstances is limitless. So we start to trust in it not only as our own resting place for peace and contentment, but also we trust in its ability to meet the world. By resting in awareness, we're not losing touch with any of our senses, any of our connection to the world. It enriches our connection to the world. And awareness also has this beautiful quality of responsiveness, that it can meet the situation with with what's appropriate. Love or compassion or happiness or patience, all the paramis. So this is the practice of uh, right attitude. Relaxing, giving ourselves to the observation, wanting to learn from our experience and allowing things to be the way they are. This is our platform for exploring the objects of our experience and the quality of awareness that comes. So the other thing I wanted to talk about tonight is to look at some of the key terms that we'll be using and try to get a little uh, more precision about our definitions. I think we've all been using them in a consistent way so far. And let's just look a little more deeply at uh, what we actually mean by these terms. So I want to particularly look at the words consciousness, mindfulness, awareness, and attention. So just go through each of those. Leading in, I want to say one of the things I really appreciate about retreats is their simplicity. We have a very simple lifestyle here. 
we eat and we sleep and we walk and we sit. We spend time in nature. We open our eyes. We close our eyes. A very simple life that's really common to all humans. And that kind of simple life brings us back to some basic questions. One of the questions I like to think about is, what is our most basic situation as human beings? And how do we find freedom in relation to it? So one of the ways of framing this is a a little uh, poem, short poem from Rumi, when he wrote, where did I come from and what am I supposed to be doing here? I have no idea. That's kind of our existential situation, isn't it? As adults, we start to wake up. We're here. Why are we here? What am I supposed to do? I don't know. This body and mind didn't come with a user manual. They didn't tell us at birth what we were supposed to be doing with our human life. What are we supposed to do? So one of the things that I like to feel into when I'm on retreat is what does it mean to be a sentient being? We are all sentient beings, like the birds and the chipmunks and the people who are driving by on the road. What does that mean? Well, I think sentient means, sentience means that we are experiencing things. We are knowing things. We are conscious beings. So if you think of it, basically what it means is as long as we're awake, things are happening and we're aware that they form our experience. So in the present moment, you're feeling body sensations, you're um, seeing the room, you're hearing my voice, you're having a certain mood, and some thoughts are going through your mind. So all these experiences are just going, going, going. We don't have to do anything particular to make them happen. In fact, could you stop them? As long as we're awake, some form of that is just going to keep going, 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 whether we want it or not. That's what being sentient involves. We're constantly being bombarded, you might say. So the Buddha described this um, in this nice little discourse called the Discourse on Totality, where he started this way. He said, bhikkhus, uh, it's a word that's usually translated as monks, but it really means uh, committed practitioners, those who are exploring the nature of their experience, like you are. Bhikkhus, I will teach you the totality of life. Listen, attend carefully, and I will speak. This is a pretty bold claim, isn't it? I'll teach you the totality of life. You think about the 20th century intellects. Marx didn't say that. Einstein didn't say that. Freud didn't say that. Here's the Buddha 2,600 years ago. I will teach you the totality of life. Listen, attend carefully. What is the totality of life? It is just the eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and sensations, the mind and objects of mind. This is called the totality of life. Anyone who attempted to describe a totality beyond this would not know that of which they were speaking. So I love this passage because it directs us to what I would say is the Buddha's map for us. This is a certain map. 
We call it the map of the sense doors. You know, in Buddhism, there are considered to be six sense doors. The five physical senses and the mind is another door, primarily bringing through thoughts and emotions. So this is the range of our experience, and our meditation is to become familiar with all of this. So that's why we give, you know, in a standard Vipassana retreat, we give so many instructions about how to pay attention to sights and sounds and sensations and breath and thoughts and emotions. This forms our world. This is where we get caught and suffer. This is where we can uh, find release and freedom as we learn to relate wisely. So I'll, I'll ask you, not right now, but suggest, take a look at this list, the six sense doors and their objects, and ask, is there anything else in your experience that's not covered in that? Or does that, in fact, describe the totality of life for you? It's something to reflect on later. So, in this passage, one of the reference, one of the things that makes up the totality of life is mind. So there's mind and objects of mind. Objects of mind, you can think basically thoughts and emotions. What is this thing called mind? Mind in this passage refers to that which knows all the other things. Mind knows sights and sounds, smells, tastes, sensations, thoughts and emotions. Or we could say that's a aspect that the Buddha called consciousness. The word he used in Pali is vijnana. This is such an important word that we'll probably refer to it again and again. And it's a word in this retreat it's useful to know, vijnana relates to knowledge or cognition, the na, nya, n, amp, with an ampersand and an a, is a little syllable that means knowing or cognizing. It's the heart of vijnana. So it's the mind that knows all these different objects. And another way to say it is that we're conscious of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, sensations, thoughts, and emotions. So this is the activity of consciousness that knows these, let's call them the sense door objects, in their most basic nature. So for instance, when we look at the eye door, what are we actually seeing in a moment? You might see this more clearly if you close one eye. If you look out, what we really see are just patches of form and color. That's the data in the eye door. We've learned that that's a woman, that's a man, that's a cushion, that's a floor, that's a wall, that's a lamp. But the basic eye door data is simply patches of form and color. So in that very simple, primitive, uninterpreted way, that's what the eye door reveals. Similarly, the ear door can reveal that sound. But the conscious knowing of that sound doesn't interpret it as bell or bell that ends a sitting. That's an addition. That's in the realm of what we could call perception. Consciousness reveals the sound. 
the perception or interpretation explains it or recognizes it. So vijnana is this quality of of our mind. It's really the essence of, of our mind's activity that's knowing and presenting to us all the different objects of experience at these six sense doors. That's what consciousness does. It presents the world to us in this very bare form. It's pre-verbal. It hasn't been interpreted. Just the bare sense data. This is vijnana. So it's happening all the time as long as we're alive and as long as we're awake. And as long as the sense doors are working. If your eye, ear, nose, tongue, body are working, these are going to be happening. We can't decide not to feel them. We can't decide to turn them off. Also, this consciousness doesn't require that we be particularly intelligent. It's happening all the time, quite automatically. We have it. Do animals have it in your intuition? Are animals conscious? Yeah, they're probably having these same experiences through their sense doors. Babies? Are babies conscious? Can they see and smell? Yeah, they respond to these things. It looks like they're conscious also. So consciousness is in all living things, all sentient things. Let's put it that way. So worms have this, sloths have this, the Buddha had this, Einstein had this, the birds have this. Everything that is sentient has this quality of consciousness. So now let's talk about mindfulness. Mindfulness has, is another step up, you could say, in intelligence, in relating to the objects of the senses revealed by consciousness, because mindfulness understands what they are. So, for instance, consciousness reveals the sound, mindfulness recognizes it as hearing or as a sound. Consciousness reveals, let's say, a pain. Mindfulness understands it as sensation with unpleasant feeling tone. It's very interesting. The the central discourse of the Buddhas on mindfulness is called the Satipatthana Sutta, foundations of mindfulness. The word in Pali for mindfulness is sati, which originally meant remember. So I think of it as remembering to notice what's happening, remembering to be in the present. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, as the Buddha is describing the four foundations, there's a word that recurs again and again and again. Every time he describes how to do mindfulness meditation, the word he uses is pajanati. Pajanati is related etymologically to the word sampajanya, which you may have heard before. It's usually translated clear comprehension. So, for instance, when the Buddha says... Breathing in long, the bhikkhu understands, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, the practitioner understands, I breathe out long. She understands the mind affected by desire is the mind affected by desire. She understands the mind unaffected by desire as mind unaffected by desire, and so on. So everywhere the Buddha describes this practice of mindfulness, the word he uses is pajanati, which gets translated as understands. So it's very interesting. Mindfulness requires this understanding, which means there has to be an intelligence behind it. 
there has to be a certain amount of intelligence to understand our experience in the framework of the four foundations which develop the quality of mindfulness. So this is another aspect of cognition, but it's a higher level functioning. In fact, you could say we've looked at three different levels of cognition. Vijnana reveals the pure sound before words. You know, I don't know what that is. Maybe it's F sharp or something on a scale. I don't know. It reveals that pure pitch. The next level up is perception that recognizes it as, oh, that's the sound of the bell. So there's a recognition factor based on memory. The next step up is mindfulness that understands that is a sense object arising at the hearing door. So that's mindfulness. It knows it as an object of the six senses arising at one of the sense doors. You don't have to go through that thinking every time, but essentially that's what mindfulness is doing. It's locating it within the framework of the Buddha's map, the totality of life, the six kinds of sense objects, and their doors. So this intelligence is is the opening to wisdom. This factor of wisdom is so important in the Buddha's teachings because it's only wisdom that can liberate our hearts and minds. We can get peaceful and still just through meditation training, but it, it will end when we get up off the cushion and encounter the world unless it's accompanied by understanding, by wisdom. So mindfulness is the entry gate for wisdom to come in. It's, the word is panya in Pali for wisdom. So one of my teachers in Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa, liked to pair these two words and he called it, he didn't often refer to it as mindfulness, he called it mindfulness wisdom. What we're developing here is mindfulness wisdom, and he called that satipanya. And he regarded it as a native quality of our mind. Satipanya. So mindfulness has this quality of intelligence that understands things um, in the context of the Buddha's map. And as we practice mindfulness, we're waking up that wisdom factor in us. And that's so key because it's understanding that liberates the heart and mind, understanding of how we suffer and how we release that suffering. Krishnamurti had a book with a lovely title pointing to this called The Awakening of Intelligence. That's what we're doing in every moment of mindfulness practice. We're awakening this native intelligence that will liberate us. So I want to contrast this quality of mindfulness and the quality of consciousness. Consciousness is happening all the time. Even if you want to, you can't turn it off. And there are many times we would like to. I flew from San Francisco to Boston the day before the retreat started. I would have loved to turn off consciousness for about six hours. I couldn't do that. So consciousness is always there. Is mindfulness always there? Was your mindfulness there uninterrupted today? No. Mindfulness kind of comes and goes. There are times that we're really in the present and knowing our experience, understanding our experience. There are many other moments when we get carried away by a thought train or we feel very sleepy and too dull to really notice what's happening. So mindfulness comes and goes. Generally, does it take some intention to be mindful? 
Yeah. Consciousness is happening spontaneously, doesn't require any effort, can't stop it. Mindfulness isn't always there. Usually needs a little bit of inclining the mind in that direction for it to be activated. Okay, dogs have uh, consciousness. Does a dog have mindfulness in the way the Buddha uses it? If you have a dog and it's dinner time, you go over near the bowl and you pull out a can of dog food and you bring out your can opener and you go rip, 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 rip. Does your dog perk up its ears? Yeah. Usually then they come right over to the bowl and they you know, want to see what's in there. Does the dog ever go, hearing is arising at the ear door? <laughs> Perception is telling me that that's the sound of the friskies can being opened, an aroma, a pleasant aroma is arising at the nose door. Perception is telling me that that's the chicken flavor for tonight. A thought arises that my bowl will soon be filled with food. So the question arises, should I walk over thoroughly mindful to my bowl and check out whether the food is there yet? That would be a mindful dog, but it's usually that not the way dogs work. They just go, smell, boom, and they're there. Or hearing, boom, and they're there. So dogs are driven by many things, you know, hunger or fear or loyalty or affection, but they don't stop to notice the motivation or the force from outside. So the understanding in Buddhism is that the dog does not have the ability to develop mindfulness, but we do. What about babies? Are they mindful? Sadness comes up, does the baby know, oh, this is sadness? When the breast comes near, do they know, oh, this is desire? Probably not. Probably not. Are they in the present moment? Yeah. Is the dog in the present moment? Yeah. So we can be very present moment oriented, but not have this quality of mindfulness active, at least in the way it's described in the Eightfold Path, this quality of samasati, right mindfulness. So this is the understanding of consciousness on the one hand, which all sentient beings share, mindfulness on the other, a higher level of intelligence, which humans can develop, but not all beings, not all beings have. So, What is awareness? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? There is no, this kind of an important point, there is no word in the Buddha's language, in the Pali language, that needs to be translated as awareness. The words he used are vijnana and sati, consciousness and mindfulness. There's no third word that we need to translate as awareness. So that's kind of interesting. So is awareness more like consciousness, that it's happening all the time and quite unprompted? Or is it more like mindfulness, that it's there some of the time and not there others? So I'll give you my opinion. You can find your own, but I'll give you my opinion. Sometimes it means one, and sometimes it means the other. 
And sometimes it means somewhere in between. So it's a wonderful word in English because it sort of spans this, this range. For instance, if I say, um, are you aware right now? Yeah, yeah. You know, if you're awake, you're aware. Uh, if somebody is thinking, when you are thinking, do you lose all awareness? No, you're aware of what you're thinking about. What you're thinking about may be the square root of 16 or something, but you're aware of thinking, you're aware of something. You're not aware that that's a thought, but you're aware of something. So in that way, it's used like consciousness. But then it could also be used like mindfulness. Like I could say, when you said that to me, were you aware of your motivation in saying it? And then it means, were you mindful? Did you know what motivation was present when you said that? So in this way that it kind of slides between these two, it's a beautiful word. It's very expressive. It's a really nice English word. We're using it as the theme of this retreat. But also be aware that it's not very precise in the way that the Buddha's language is. Vijnana, very precise. Sati, mindfulness, is very precise. Awareness is kind of slippery. And so this richness of the term awareness can actually help us, can help our intuition settle into kind of both aspects of what are going on. There's the knowing of individual things happening quite spontaneously, and there's this intelligence that can meet them and understand them. And both of those are pointed to by this term awareness. So there's a little potential for confusion here, but I hope you won't let it worry you too much. As you use the word yourself, look into what you mean by it. Are you leaning more toward the spontaneous knowing of things, like consciousness? Are you leaning more to having this wisdom factor, like satipanya, of mindfulness? We will use them in both senses. And so that ambiguity is kind of just part of the retreat. Uh, we're quite comfortable with it. And so I hope, you know, I hope you will be too. And it's very interesting to keep looking into these, you could say, these two aspects of the English term awareness. It's a beautiful term and, and really helpful to us. So we'll be presenting lots of different meditation objects uh, at the six sense doors. And then we also keep wanting, uh, we'll keep wanting to turn and look back at this quality of knowing of them, uh, the consciousness, and then the higher level cognition of mindfulness, you know, both of which we might describe as awareness. So, as we've said a few times today, don't worry too much whether you're with the sense object or you're tuning into the knowing of it, you know, this consciousness factor that's receiving it. Because either way, the quality of mindfulness will be activated. And the quality of mindfulness opens the door to understanding and and liberation. So either way is fine. And we'll sometimes talk about the objects and we'll sometimes talk about the knowing or the consciousness of them. And either way, uh, the practice will be going great. So don't spend too much time 
sort of spinning around about am I with the knowing or am I, you know, stuck in the dreary old object. Those dreary old objects work just fine for us. So we'll go back and forth and we'll get more fluency in that going back and forth. So I'll just close with this um, little quotation from, actually it's from uh, Sariputta. He was asked at one point, what is Nibbana? You, know, you probably know this term Nibbana is the ultimate goal of the path of, of mindfulness. It's a state of uh, deep and, and complete peace and the end of, end of conflict, inner conflict. And he said, Nibbana is the destruction of greed, the destruction of aversion, the destruction of delusion. This is called Nibbana. So these qualities, when you start to look at the nature of awareness itself, these qualities are absent in this pure nature of awareness. So as we tune into this knowing faculty with its associated wisdom, we are stepping out of the samsaric forces of greed, aversion, delusion, and inclining the mind toward the goal of the path, this ultimate peace of Nibbana. That is what we are doing moment by moment. So as we rest there, as we find out how to rest there, we get a little bit of a taste of that peace already. And it's leading into its own deepening. So this will be the the path of practice for this week. And if we understand in this way, we kind of bring the path and the goal together. Resting in this place of knowing is free from greed, aversion, delusion, and it leads onward to the full purification, the full liberation of Nibbana. This is our direction for the week. At the end of the talks, we just like to have a little bit of uh, quiet time, a minute or two, just to let the words settle. So we'll just sit for a minute or so together in silence, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.